0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hi again, New Hope. I wonder if any of you can remember the last time you had to ask someone for forgiveness. Do you remember when it happened? Do you remember what it felt like? Or what kind of response you got? If you can't recall the last time that you asked someone to forgive you, it may not be because you haven't let anyone down lately. Or you haven't hurt anyone lately. It's possible, in fact, I'd say it's probable, that if you can't remember the last time you asked someone for forgiveness... It's because you're simply not in the habit of seeking forgiveness from people. That somehow you've fallen out of the habit or you've never developed it. And that's understandable, really, because asking for forgiveness can be hard. It's a humbling act, isn't it? When you ask someone, would you please forgive me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. It's hard enough to say that, isn't it? But then to go a step further beyond, I'm sorry, and say, will you please forgive me for what I've done? According to Jesus, as difficult as it is to seek forgiveness, it's an important part of life. It, it needs to happen. And I hope today we'll see why. And I hope we'll see as well that seeking and receiving forgiveness changes us deeply. Seeking and receiving forgiveness changes us deeply. Now, when we heard these words that Kathy just read to us, thank you, Kathy, for reading God's word to us, by the way. We were listening in on Jesus mid-sermon because Jesus, in the, that chapter, Matthew 6 of, uh, chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus is preaching a longer sermon, and he's teaching his disciples about what it looks like to live in God's kingdom, under God's rule. Here's another way to think about that. He's teaching his disciples what it looks like to be his disciples, to be his followers. And in chapter 6, he teaches them how to pray. He says, this is a major part of what it looks like to be a follower of mine. It's, It's to pray to the Father. And he gives them this model prayer, what people usually call the Lord's Prayer. Maybe some of you have heard it many, many times, memorized it and recited it from a young age. Maybe for some of you, it's pretty new. But this Lord's Prayer is a guide for how to talk to God the Father. I'm not going to review everything we've looked at with regard to this prayer up until now. Instead, what I'm just going to do is look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and that little line, it teaches us that forgiveness is a way of life for every follower of Jesus. Jesus. And we know it's a way of life because Jesus is saying, pray like this. And the content of this prayer implies strongly that this is a prayer that we're meant to be praying on a regular basis, that these are things that we're meant to be saying to God repeatedly and consistently. And one of those things we're meant to be talking to God about consistently is forgiveness because it's a way of life for every follower of Jesus. That's the big idea that I have for today. But we're going to break that down into three three points, and, and here they are. Number one, we all incur debt. Number two, we all need forgiveness. And number three, forgiven debtors are forgiving debtors. Let's look at that first one. We, we all incur debt. When Jesus tells all his disciples, ask your Father in heaven to forgive your debts, what's he assuming? He's assuming that we all have debts to pay, isn't he? Regardless of how careful you have been with your finances, Regardless of of whether you're a graduate of Financial Peace University, regardless of whether you have a great credit score or not, we all incur debt. Some English Bibles translate that word there, forgive us our debt. They translate that word debt as sin. But the word that Jesus used there is not the standard word for sin. There are other words for sin that Jesus uses elsewhere, but here he uses the word debt. You see, the standard word for sin that shows up most often in the Bible, I'll just say it. In Greek, it's hamartias, hamartias. And hamartias, he, that word is used uh, when, when Jesus teaches a similar prayer to his disciples in Luke, for example. It's a very similar prayer, but he changes up that word. He uses the word hamartias or sin, but here he uses a different word. This one's a little harder to pronounce. It's the word ophelémata. Ophelémata. And ophelémata happens to be, check this out, happens to be the same word that Jesus used when he was telling the story about a servant who owed money to his boss in Matthew 18. He says in Matthew 18 that, that when this, this boss began to settle his accounts, one of his servants was brought to him who, quote, owed him 10,000 talents. This servant owed his boss 10,000 talents. We don't know exactly how he came to owe his boss this money. Did he borrow it? Did he embezzle it? We don't know. But he owed him money. And that word for owed is ophelimata. The same word. You see, Jesus liked to use different words to talk about sin. and, And each word to talk about sin kind of points at a different aspect of what sin is. There's there's the word I used before, the hamartias, which means literally, it means to, to miss the mark. But then there's this other Greek word that, that Jesus uses that's usually translated as transgression. And that word for sin, it means to, to go astray or to wander from the path. Or to cross a line that you shouldn't have crossed. And there's another word that's used for, the, for sin, it's Usually translated iniquity, and that word means wickedness or evil. So you see, sin is all these things. I'm not not trying to give you some kind of Greek lesson here. I'm just trying to point out that all these words capture some aspect of what sin is. And, And I think it's helpful for us to understand what sin means. So on the one hand, according to one word, sin is missing the mark. Aiming for something and missing. In another sense, sin is deviating from the path that God's called us to. It's wandering from the path. In another sense, it's doing evil. It's doing evil. But the word that Jesus chooses here is none of those words. No, he chooses a word that means to owe someone something. To owe them what they're due, what's rightfully theirs. And this, I think, is helpful for us if we really want to understand what this prayer is about. Jesus is saying, when you pray... Humbly admit that you have not given God everything that he is owed. Think about the fact when you pray that you have held back from God what is rightfully his. Jesus says this should be on our minds when we come to the Father. And this gets at the root of what sin is. Because sin isn't just doing the wrong thing. Sin isn't just wandering from the path. No, deep down... Sin is holding back from God what is rightfully his. Namely, holding back yourself. Holding back your heart. Holding back your affections and your allegiance and your loyalty and your devotion. Holding back your heart from God. God has been telling us this forever, by the way. Matthew 22, there's a lawyer that asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment in God's law? And and some of you know what Jesus answered, right? What did Jesus say? What is the most important commandment? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Jesus says. This is what we owe God, to love him. With all our hearts and soul and mind, we saw a few weeks ago that God actually wants your happiness. God wants you to enjoy, every one of you, he wants you to enjoy eternal happiness, lasting, permanent happiness. And that only comes by loving the Lord your God who made you. That's what we were made for. We were all made to know and enjoy God, and and it's by trusting him, by by obeying him, because we love him, that we find happiness. But we all hold ourselves back from him, don't we? In one way or another, we hold ourselves back. So the fact is that every time we deviate from one of God's instructions, it's not just breaking the rules. There's more under that rule-breaking. It's rooted in a lack of trust for him, a lack of love for him. Every time time one of us acts out in greed or, or dishonesty or anger or lust, what's happening there? We could say it was an error in judgment. It was a mistake. I got carried away with myself. All of that is true. But underneath all of that, there is a failure to love God and value what he tells us is good. Deep down underneath every sin is the absence of love for God. In fact, here's a revealing thought. You can even obey all the rules. You can live a decent, respectable life so that anyone who looks at you would say, that's that's a good guy, or or, "She's she's a decent person. And at the same time, you can have no love for God. All the while refusing, holding yourself back and refusing to love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind. Let's be honest, New Hope. Who of us has lived up to that command? Who of us has loved the Lord our God with all, all, A-L-L, our heart, soul, and mind? Some of us perhaps are saying, I love God. He's taught me to love him. He's loved me and I have learned to love him. But when I hear those words, I'm convicted. No, I haven't loved him with all my heart. Not all the time. Not with all my strength. God is saying that's true. You're right. You haven't. And to the degree that you have refused to give yourself to him or you have failed to give him what he is due, you have incurred a debt. We have all incurred debt. That's why the old British uh, Book of Common Prayer reads this way. It says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. I love this confession. But look what comes first. Before the writers of the Book of Common Prayer talk about the bad things they've done, first they say, we have left undone the things that we should have done. We have not paid you the debt of love and worship that you deserve. The old theologians call these sins of omission. Sins of commission are the sins you commit, the bad things you do. Sins of omission is the stuff, the good stuff you hold back from God or hold back from others. We have not loved you with our whole heart, Our whole soul and our whole mind, we have all incurred debt towards God. That's the first thing this prayer teaches us. And then the second part, second point is this. We all need debt forgiveness. We all need debt forgiveness because there are some debts that you can pay off on your own. I'm sure. With a little bit of time and effort and patience and and putting money away and making sure you're, you're, you're doubling your payments, you can pay off your debts. Your student loans. Some of us have paid off our student loans, and we remember the day when it happened. We remember when the final payment was sent. And we celebrated. Some of us maybe, maybe one day we'll be able to pay off our mortgages. Maybe. Maybe we'll live long enough. That's not a guarantee or a promise, uh, but maybe. But how do you how do you pay off this debt? This debt incurred by failing to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We can't pay off that debt. No, but here's the great news. Here's the great news. The God who loves us offers debt forgiveness, costly debt forgiveness, because Jesus, in fact, the Son of God who taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. This same Jesus went to the cross to get our debts forgiven to get them paid. We, we often think about how at the cross, through his death, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And that's gloriously true. But there's much more that happened at the cross than just our sins being paid for and, and wrath being absorbed in our place. There's, there's more than that. You see, what happens when you believe the gospel is what theologians have called double imputation, I'm using these words that theologians use. I normally don't do this or use Greek words and things like that. I'm just using I think these words are are helpful. I think they're important, So, so bear with me. Double imputation is what happened at the cross when Jesus died. You see, when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, your sin, your debts, all the debts you've incurred are imputed to him. That means they are counted to him. They are added to his account and he pays it all. He pays it all through a supreme act of love. He gave up himself to pay all of that. But there's more. Remember, it said it's double imputation. Double. It's a two-sided coin because the same Jesus, he always loved God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the only man who lived on this world, on this planet, and never incurred debt towards God. When you entrust your life to him, that obedience, his perfect record of loving the Father is imputed to you. That is, it's credited to you. It's added to your account. Praise be to God for this. Jesus, every day, he loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you will submit your life to him, his perfect love for the Father is now credited to you. Your your immense debt incurred over a lifetime is paid. In fact, your failures not only in the past, but but in the future are atoned for as well. Praise be to Christ. Praise be to Christ. We all need debt forgiveness, and Jesus offers it to us freely. Freely. And the only requirement he places on us is that that we would admit our debt and our inability to pay it and ask for forgiveness. Trust him for it. You know, all this raises a question. Maybe you're asking it. I know I asked this question for many years. If Christ's death on the cross atoned for all your sins, past, present, and future, why does Jesus teach his disciples to keep praying, Father, forgive us our debts? Why do we have to pray this every day? Aren't they already forgiven? When I put my faith in Jesus, was it my account taken care of? It's a question I asked for a long time, and I, I want to share with you an answer to this by, by J.I. Packer, who I've been quoting a lot in recent weeks, but I'm going to quote him again. Why why do we need to keep praying for forgiveness of sins if if when we put our faith in Christ, our our sins were forgiven completely, past, present, and future? Here's what he says. He says, the answer lies in distinguishing between God as judge and as father, and between being a justified sinner and an adopted son. See what, what, pause for a second, what? What Packer's is saying is that when we ask daily for God to forgive us our sins, we're not talking about a courtroom situation. We're talking about a living room situation. This is not legal language. This is family language. Look what he goes on to say. The Lord's prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father. And through and though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, that is your sins can't change the fact that God has forgiven and justified and accepted you, nevertheless, things will not be right between them and their father till they have said, I'm sorry, and asked their father to overlook the ways that they have let him down. You see this, when we fail to love our father, we're called to come back to him. Not because we're afraid he might revoke our standing in the family, Reject us altogether, but because he's our father. Think relationally. Think relationally. You hurt someone, someone you love, and they love you. And they love you so much that even though you hurt them, maybe it's someone in your family or it's a close friend, they've chosen not to hold this against you. They have preemptively decided, I will not make my friend pay for what they've done. But but even though that forgiveness has already been given to you, shouldn't you go and address that matter? Address the fact that you've hurt them? Shouldn't you go to your loved one and say, I am deeply sorry for what I've done? Your forgiveness means a lot to me. Shouldn't you express remorse and seek forgiveness? Shouldn't you say to that one who has already forgiven you, I'm deeply sorry? It's not not because they're, they're gonna hold it against you if you don't ask. No, it's because you love them, it's for the sake of the relationship. You know how that relationship is strained, and distance and coldness will set into that relationship if you simply say, Ah, they forgave me anyway. They forgave me. It's all good. No, even for your own sake, go to the one you love and loves you and say, Once again, I'm deeply sorry. Will you forgive me? So, Christians, when Christians, we do, we don't have to go on asking God for forgiveness to appease him so that he stops being angry and wrathful with us. No, we do it because he's our Father who loves us. He doesn't want us to minimize our sin or ignore it, he wants us to bring it to him. It doesn't mean that our justification constantly hangs in the balance. As though if I don't keep asking for forgiveness for every sin, if I don't remember to ask forgiveness for every sin, my acceptance with God's going to be revoked. No. In fact, it's only because we've already been forgiven for past, present, and future sins that we can now say, I'm sorry, Father. Again and again, with the confidence that he's going to continue to extend grace. He's going to continue to welcome and embrace us each time we come back. You see, because Christians don't come to God like a defendant in a courtroom. No, not anymore. Not anymore. No, once you've believed in Jesus, we now come to the Father like a kid goes to his father or her father, who longs, a father who longs for the relationship to be set right, for anything that's standing between us to be taken care of. A father who's eager to restore what you've damaged. In this relationship. A father who says enter my joy. I want you back. Unconfessed sin just creates this, 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 this block. It keeps us from being able to relate to God the father the way he wants us to. And so he says bring it all to me. And this is all super important for us to know brothers and sisters because Because we all keep sinning. (laughs) And, And especially since the longer you follow Jesus, the more you become aware of your own sin. Maybe it's not that you're sinning more. Hopefully you're sinning less than you used to. By God's grace, that's the way sanctification works. God continues to transform us so that we become more like Jesus and less like we used to be. But nevertheless, the longer you follow Jesus, sometimes the more you see your failings. The, the more sensitive and aware of your failings you are, the more you realize the ways that you don't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That can be a frustrating thing, isn't it? We start to see more and more clearly the subtle ways that we betray him, the subtle ways that we treasure other things more than him. For the past couple of weeks've um, I've been trying to fix my the deck that's attached to the back of my house because there are these uh, it's old, and there are these these deck boards that have gotten old uh, old and, and and rotten and weak, and so I've had to replace several of them and what I'm finding is weekend to weekend, I'll replace a couple and I'll think I'm done, and then I'll realize there are more that need to be replaced, or underneath those boards. There are joists that are also rotten, and they need to be replaced. It's been a frustrating few weeks, frankly. Because the further I go, the more rottenness I find. I think this is similar to the Christian life in some ways. But what I realize also is as time has gone on, I'm less and less surprised by the rottenness I'm seeing in those floorboards. And I'm more and more equipped to actually do something about it. Because I've developed some skills. I know now how to fix it. And I have the help of a very handy friend who comes over and helps me. And he's got tools that I can borrow and use. And so as time goes on, I see more and more rottenness, but at the same time, I find myself more and more equipped and empowered to actually fix the rottenness. And this is, I think, in some ways, like the Christian life. I don't need to... Pretend that the deck is sturdy and fine. I can admit that it's busted. And I can use the resources that I have and that others have lent me to fix it. I can uncover what's wrong. I can admit it. And by God's grace, see it fixed. And so it is in our lives. The longer we walk with Christ, maybe the more rottenness we're seeing. But over time, maybe we're less surprised by the rottenness. We also find that the Spirit is giving us more and more help, more and more strength. We're learning more about who God is. We're learning more of the Scriptures. We're getting more help from members of our community, our friends in Christ, so that we can actually deal with the rottenness as we find it. We don't need to pretend it's not there. Praying these words is part of that process. So I want to encourage you to pray these words often, New Hope. Father, forgive us our debts. You see what's under the floorboards, Lord. Forgive us our debts. These are shaping words, by the way, because what they do is they humble us because they remind us that we're in constant need of God's grace. But at the same time that they humble us, these words also, they comfort us because they remind us that God is constantly ready to receive and restore us again and again. That's why we... Tell our kids when they were little, we tried to teach them to to say, I'm sorry, and please forgive me. Taught them to say this. Because we believe that those words, that engaging in that, just like Jesus is telling us to say, Father, forgive us our debts. We try to teach our kids to say to others, to us and to others, I'm sorry, forgive me. Why? Sometimes we knew they didn't mean it, frankly. Sometimes they would just kind of mouth the words, I'm sorry, forgive me. But why did we make them keep saying it? Because we believe that these words that are so hard to get out are shaping words. They humble us, even when you don't want to say it. and Mom or dad is making you say it. It's exercising some muscles, some humility muscles. It's mouthing these words with the hope that eventually your heart will catch up with your mouth. And so when my kids would say, I'm not sorry, I said, we're going to say it anyway. And with time, we'll see if you feel sorry. We'll try to help you feel sorry. And and we did. But you see, it's also the other reason that we would tell our kids to to say these words is not just because it humbled them, but it also gave them the opportunity to find out that forgiveness was always there. That we were always ready to forgive them. If they just say the words, we're ready to embrace you and forgive, we're not going to hold this against you. In this household, we're not going to keep throwing these debts back in your face. We're going to cancel these debts. Just ask. Just ask. And our hope in doing that is as they get older, the heart would catch up with the mouth. And these would become sincere pleas for forgiveness and real experiences of God's grace. Let's get to the last point. Forgiven debtors are forgiving debtors. Forgiven debtors are forgiving debtors. In other words, forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people forgive people. I'm just saying it a million different ways. I'll stop. We, We know this because... Jesus tells us to pray in verse 12. Look at the second part of that verse. It says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. People are going to owe us things, aren't they? (laughs) People will incur debts against us. They're going to fail to give us what we're due. What if people fail to give you that you're due? What debts have people incurred against you? Maybe some folks have not given you the respect that you deserve or the affection that you're due maybe some people have held back the trust that they should have given you or they haven't given you the benefit of the doubt when they should have maybe some people have withheld affirmation from you maybe some people have not given you the dignity that you deserve what else is there that people have held back from you what kinds of debts have people incurred against you? If you happen to be here with a family member, you could probably look, look at one of your family members and think of some of the debts that they've incurred against you. Or you could just look up here. You don't need to look at each other. That's all right. I know it's awkward. But if you feel led to, you could look over. Or you could look at the person next to you and think about some of the debts that you've incurred against them. Jesus takes those debts seriously, but he also says that if you've experienced the cancellation of your debts by God the Father, you need to be canceling debts too. If your debts have been canceled by God the Father, you need to be canceling debts too. There is no place for someone to say, I have received the forgiveness of the Father, but I'm keeping a long list of all the debts you owe me. Some of us are good at maintaining that list. I've heard even recently about how some of the, the greatest athletes of all time are really good at, at remembering times where their opponents have snubbed them, times when their opponents have uh, insulted them, and they store it away in the back of their heads. And why do they do that? Because they realize that, that holding on to those old offenses, those old hurts, ooh, that can light a fire in you, a competitive fire. It, it, it makes you angrier, Right? Ooh, I'm going to beat this person because of what they tweeted about me last week. Or I'm going to beat this person. I'm going to embarrass them on the court because of what I heard they said about me. Or that trash that they talked the last time we played. Gives you a competitive edge. Well, according to Christ, life is not a competition, folks. We're not in competition against one another. On On the contrary, he says, because I have forgiven all your trash talk and all your snubs and all your disrespect, I'm now calling you to give freely that forgiveness to others. Tom Wright said that our generation has either forgotten about forgiveness or trivialized it. I think he's right. I think he's right. We either forget about forgiveness, like it doesn't matter, or we trivialize it. Like we either take it lightly, like we say, oh, no worries, no big deal, when really it is a big deal. The hurt is real, but we play it off, ah, no big deal all good or sometimes we refuse to forgive instead of saying you're forgiven we say no you're done you're dead to me instead of canceling debts we we cancel people But according to Jesus forgiveness is the way of life in God's kingdom it's the way of life for every one of his followers so in our day-to-day what Matthew 6.12 teaches us is that the, experiencing the Father's generous forgiveness is meant to transform us into generously forgiving people. And, and notice, notice what he says there in verse 12. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not because, it's not forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors. No. What we're doing here is we're making a plea and a commitment at the same time. We're saying, forgive me, Lord, and I'm committing also to forgive others knowing that even as we fail to forgive others, we can bring those failures back to God. We can bring our unforgivingness to God and seek forgiveness for it, and he will forgive, and he will transform us into people who are more generous to cancel debts. He will give us the power to forgive those who snub us and mistreat us and deceive us and hurt us. And at the end, after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this in verse 14 he says for if you forgive those who forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses these are hard words for us especially for those of us who know how to hold a grudge and we know how to keep a list again he's not saying that we earn god's forgiveness by forgiving people that's not how it works our forgiveness from God, was earned by Jesus Christ and his supreme act of love on our behalf. But what these sobering words do tell us is that everyone who has received God's forgiveness must also imitate that forgiveness. Here's another way, maybe a better way to think about it. If you've experienced God's forgiveness, you're expected to live out of that forgiveness by now offering it to others. And a failure to do that may be an indication that you've never experienced the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. That's what one author says here, John Stott. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own you see what he's saying? And by the way, I don't mean to minimize in any way the deep hurts that you've experienced in life or act like, oh, it's no big deal. You should just be able to forgive the abuse you experienced. Oh, you were betrayed by someone. Oh, just just forgive. It's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not even saying it's, it's, it's immediate. We, we looked at this. I can't. I don't have time to qualify everything I'm saying, but if we, if we go back a, a few weeks back when we were looking at the Apostles' Creed, we looked at forgiveness more carefully there, and, and we saw that forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't seek justice for a crime that's been committed against you. Forgiveness doesn't mean that that the relationship between you and the person who hurt you, everything just goes back to normal as if nothing ever happened again. Forgiveness is not cheap. And there are instances in which it's very, very complicated to know how to forgive. Forgiveness is in part a commitment to not get revenge. It's a commitment to not exact personal payment, vengeance, it means entrusting all that to the Lord into his hands. The God who says, vengeance is mine. We're saying, I'm, I'm revoking the luxury of pursuing vengeance against you. In Matthew 18, 23, Jesus tells a, a story about a, a boss, a master, who was owed 10,000 talents by an employee, by a servant. And after the servant comes to him and says, please, I'll never be able to pay this back, the master's on the verge of, of, of imprisoning, sending the this, this, this servant into indentured servitude to pay back his debt. The servant pleads and pleads and pleads, and finally the master says, okay, I'll cancel the debt. One 10,000 talents, you're off the hook. And then that servant, maybe you know this story, as he's leaving the presence of his very generous master, he runs into another servant, his buddy, his colleague. And that colleague happens to owe him one denarii. And what does that servant do? He demands that one denarii. He gets violent. He takes legal action. What Jesus is doing here is he's telling us an outrageous story. Let, Let me try to explain how outrageous this is. A talent... In Jesus' day, well, let me start with the denarii. A denarii, one denarii, was one day's wages for a common laborer. You work in the fields, one day, you get a denarii for that day. One talent was a year's wages for that same laborer. One year's wages for that same laborer. Jesus says, that laborer owed his master 10,000 talents. How many years of work is that? It's more than a lifetime, isn't it? More than many, many, many lifetimes. And so this is an outrageous story. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like when you, my people, who've been forgiven an astronomical debt that you can never, ever figure out or calculate, you enjoy that forgiveness and then you walk away and you demand payment on every other small debt that someone has against you. Jesus saying, if if, if you will pray these words and consistently come before God to remember the debt that you've been freed from, then that's going to shape you into a people who live with a humble confidence before God and shape you into a people who give grace to others as they let you down. Jesus says, that unforgiving servant, he's not living like a member, of, like a citizen of my kingdom. He says, the citizens of my kingdom have received forgiveness and they freely give it out. Now there's a learning curve here. This is not easy. This is hard. But God is committed by his spirit, through his word, to teach us more and more what it looks like to be forgiving people who don't cancel people, but cancel debts again and again and again. As I end today, as we close, I want to give you just a a bit of a word of counsel with regard to our our households because I think that in our households that's often where these issues of forgiveness seeking forgiveness and giving forgiveness kind of work themselves out our homes new hope should be places where forgiveness is quickly sought and generously given would you agree with that I wonder did you grow up in a house like that Where, where forgiveness was quickly sought and and graciously generously given or did you grow up in a household where, where hurts were ignored, where they were just buried? Or, or did you grow up believing that if a conflict arises or someone gets hurt, the best thing to do is just to, to wait until it all blows over? Don't talk about it. Time heals all wounds. It's a lie. And so you were never taught to just s- seek forgiveness. From one another or to explicitly forgive one another you never taught that you're never taught to to reconcile so many parents so many parents refuse to say i'm sorry to their children will you please forgive me what are they doing they're training their kids to grow up to be men and women who will not say i'm sorry barely know how and struggle to forgive others because they've never experienced that forgiveness in their homes. And because they have such a hard time with it, they don't teach their children to seek forgiveness and reconcile with each other. And so there are, as in any household, whether you live, by, you live with a roommate or you live with your biological family or an adoptive family, there are conflicts. It's inevitable. And when those fights and those hurts happen, what comes next Just Nothing. Time passes, and hopefully everything goes back to normal. But if you grew up like that, perhaps you've noticed that things don't really go back to normal. Not over the long haul. There's always a price to pay. You see, over time, in those relationships where there's been hurt and hurt and hurt, and it's never addressed, and there's never an I'm sorry, there's never a reconciling event, what happens? Over time, distance starts to set in. Bitterness starts to set in. Subtly. Because all those hurts and all those offenses didn't disappear. They just got ignored. And they silently accumulated and accumulated, and they're all still there in the depths of your heart, hidden under the floorboards of your household. How much better if you had actively learned to confess and cancel debts? Now, here's the thing we can change that in our households. We can change that. Children of God, followers of Christ, you can change this in your household. You don't need to continue the the pattern that you grew up with. Dads, especially, if you happen to be a dad, I know this is Father's Day. I'll put you on the spot anyway. You, dads, um, we celebrate you, we love you. You're in a position to change this. You're in a position to exert your energy by God's grace towards changing this culture and creating a culture of forgiveness in your household by learning to seek and give forgiveness and encouraging others to do the same in your home. Father's Day might be a good day to have a conversation about some of those things, to seek forgiveness for some of the ways that you have incurred debt against one another. Because learning to seek and give forgiveness is a major part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's an essential part of discipleship. Maybe even today, maybe there's some old debts. Maybe there's some fresh debts that need to be addressed. Go for it. Do it. And you'll, you'll see it gets easier, right? The more you uncover that rottenness and start addressing it, the easier it gets. And then together, you and your household can call out to the Father, forgive us our debts. Even as we, even as we stumblingly and awkwardly and, and, and humbly... Seek to forgive one another. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the forgiving spirit that you have shown us. And We thank you that your forgiving spirit now abides in us. Transform us, Lord. Help us to be people that are quick to forgive and quick to seek forgiveness as well. Remind us of how humbly we depend on your constant grace every moment and fill us with the confidence to know that you will never stop forgiving your children. In Jesus' name, amen.